You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Over 1.5 million aged 20 years or older will be newly diagnosed with diabetes. It continues to be one of the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and today we have with us Dr. Noah Berkowitz, President and CEO of Altion Incorporated, a drug research company in New Jersey who is on the forefront of identifying those at risk from diabetes. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Dr. Johnson. Today we're going to talk about better predicting and defining that risk. Can you tell us a little about your company and what you are doing that puts you on the cutting edge of genetic medicine? Well, our company is focused on targeted therapies. There are two drugs that we have in development right now that are, that are targeting diabetes and in particular uh, being developed to decrease the cardiovascular complications of the disease. One of them is called ALT2074, a small molecule that we're developing to target to high-risk diabetic patients after they're having an acute coronary syndrome. Another drug under development is a drug called Alagibrium. Uh, that drug will be targeting patients with diabetes or metabolic syndrome to decrease their diastolic heart failure or to protect them from progression towards diabetic nephropathy. You know, you've developed a whole new way to think about heart failure. Can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. I think that by and large, we've just been following the flow of science and clinical medicine over the past few years. I think one of the big questions out there for cardiologists for decades is why is it that patients with heart failure who come in with shortness of breath seem to have pulmonary edema? Why not all of them, when you perform an echocardiogram, demonstrate a reduced ejection fraction, meaning what we always thought of as a failing heart. And what's come out over the past few years is that many of those patients, in fact, maybe as many as 50% of them, have an inability to pump out the blood from their heart. And so, in effect, the blood backs up into the lungs. You get pulmonary edema. Not because the heart has a problem in its squeeze, in its inotropy, but because the heart has a problem in its relaxation, in diastole. And so we call this diastolic dysfunction, which can lead to diastolic heart failure. And this segment of the heart failure population behaves completely differently than the general heart failure population, as we've always been taught to think of it. Um, our goal overall is to understand the underlying mechanism for diastolic heart failure and develop and advance a drug that can target that mechanism of action and address an important unmet medical need. Um, can you comment any more about your indications in diastolic heart failure and what successes you've had? Sure. Well, the company has, um, has had this drug in clinical development for a few years. We've explored the use of this drug in patients with heart failure in two small phase two clinical studies. The first looked at a little more than 20 patients who presented with normal ejection fraction, but with signs and symptoms of heart failure. So we'll call that heart failure with normal ejection fraction. Uh, these patients with diastolic heart failure were given the drug for about four months, and they underwent an MRI and an echocardiogram, and 
were also subjected to quality of life questionnaires. The company reported a couple of years ago that this patient population was observed to have a decreased mass in the heart after being treated with this drug and also having improvement in some of the cardiac function, not the ejection fraction per se, but the ability of the heart to fill with blood. That was very consistent with an underlying mechanism for diastolic heart failure in which there's a problem in the heart's relaxation and an inability to fill and therefore eject an appropriate volume of blood. It was not surprising, therefore, that patients also reported a dramatic improvement in symptoms over the course of that trial. In a companion trial, we looked at patients who had systolic heart failure. They had low ejection fractions, but there was still a problem in relaxation of the heart. So you might say they had both aspects of heart failure. And in this population, also a group of a little more than 20 patients, echocardiograms were performed at the beginning and at the end of six months of therapy. And in this population, there was a clear demonstration of decreased left atrial pressure and a variety of other measures that would be consistent on echocardiogram with kind of decreasing these signs that we can measure diagnostically of uh, pulmonary edema and heart failure. And so we were excited to take those results and also consider the fact that in a companion set of clinical trials where the drug was found to not work as an antihypertensive agent, we then realized that we had a, a drug that can be used in heart failure, but was really unlikely to alter patients' blood pressure. And if there's one thing you'd really want to be able to market in the heart failure patient population, it's a drug that can improve the diastolic function of the heart and therefore improve patient symptoms, but not alter the hemodynamic state of the patient uh, because that can have some devastating outcomes. We know that that's a reason that physicians are sometimes averse to raising the dose of ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers or even spironolactone when they're dosing patients with heart failure. And our hope is that we can overcome that with our drug by not having those hemodynamic effects. You've done some incredible work. There have been a lot of failures in cardiovascular medicine in the last few years. Would you like to discuss a few or some discontinued trials and, and tell us what uh, we've all learned from those trials? Failures is always a hard term to, um, to define because, in fact, clinical development is, you know, follows a roller coaster course. Sometimes things advance fast. Sometimes they advance more slowly. And even in what are perceived to be some initial failures, we can also identify tremendous opportunity in the future. What the cardiovascular medicine community has learned over the past year, I would say, is that in doing large-scale clinical trials for drugs that are um, thought to have new mechanisms of action that can affect atherosclerosis and protect patients with known cardiovascular disease, one has to be very careful in terms of expectations because what you can see in phase two doesn't always pan out in phase three. Many people are acquainted with Pfizer's experience with torcetrapib. Uh, this is a drug that was supposed to be blocking 
CETP, you know, a cholesterol ester transfer protein uh, inhibitor. And uh, this particular drug was supposed to raise HDL levels in patients, lower LDL levels in patients, and one would expect, therefore, that it would improve outcomes in patients with cardiovascular disease. Uh, In large randomized studies, the company recently reported that patients did in fact have a decrease in HDL and an increase in LDL, but there was also some small increase in blood pressure over the course of those studies. And when they looked at the combined endpoints that we really care about in medicine, are we prolonging life? Are we decreasing complications? They observed that in fact the drug increased the cardiovascular event rate. Uh, The patients may have been more likely to have complications or, or, or more likely to have poor outcomes if they received the drug. And so Pfizer made a dramatic announcement a few months ago that they would not be developing this drug uh, as aggressively in the future. More recently, a a company named Atherogenics um, reported results with AGI-1067. I forget the the, uh, uh, generic name for this, but this is a compound that they had in development that had antioxidant properties when they looked at their 7,000 patient randomized controlled phase three clinical study, they observed that the drug lowered HDL, raised LDL, those were bad things, and in fact did not meet the primary endpoint of decreasing the cardiovascular events, you know, which were a series of events ranging from death to um, decreasing unstable angina, percutaneous angioplasty, and other complications. Now, is there any risk of uh, untoward outcome with the work that you're doing? Uh, There always is, and we may find that our trials deliver similar results um, to what was observed with in those clinical trials. The way we try to mitigate against that risk is by developing our drugs with a clear understanding of mechanism of action, which obviously they had as well. They may have even had a better understanding of mechanism of action, but really choosing a targeted therapeutic development path in which we can give the drug not to all patients who present with a problem, but to the patients that are most likely to benefit from the drug based on its mechanism of action and based on the underlying mechanism of their disease. Now, can you anticipate other indications for algebraum based on the work that you're doing? Well, earlier we had discussed heart failure and diastolic heart failure in particular as being an area of interest for us. Another important area of development would be diabetic nephropathy. We know that a large plurality of patients with diabetes go on to develop diabetic nephropathy, and then may get end-stage renal disease. So diabetes is an important contributor to not just the transplant population, but uh, before that, end-stage renal disease, you know, the dialysis population. And the reason that patients develop this disease is because of macrovascular complications from diabetes, but we think also because of the deposition of advanced glycation end products in the uh, different portions of the kidney, which trigger inflammation and damage and decreased function. We know that proteinuria is a terrible harbinger of renal function deterioration, and we know that our drug can dramatically decrease proteinuria in preclinical models, uh, very similar to what's seen with angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors, which we know can prolong life 
and can decrease the progression to end-stage renal disease. We're hoping that our drug can do the same. So certainly. So what would be your clinical plans uh, for further stages of trials in uh, nephropathy? Well, we've made limited announcements in this regard. We do know that the peer review community is very interested in seeing the advancement of our drug in this indication. A Dr. Mark Cooper from Australia received a grant from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation that will allow him to study elagibram in patients who have type 1 diabetes to see if it can decrease the progression of their microproteinuria. Uh, there are other plans that we're evaluating that would allow us to explore this in a larger patient population, maybe one with type 2 diabetes. And our goal would be to demonstrate decreased proteinuria, I suppose, as well as ultimately, I think what we'd want to show physicians is that we can um, decrease progression of their renal disease. You're certainly on the cutting edge of what sounds like some very significant work that will affect a large number of Americans. And I want to thank Dr. Noah Berkowitz, who's been our guest. And we have been discussing indications for diabetes, diagnosing earlier, and preventing some of the end organ damage that comes with diabetes. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.